Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, April 5th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can now also listen to Poets and Muses via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And you can find those links on our site at poetsandmuses.com and at the upper right-hand side of our SoundCloud page, where you can also find the link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram as well as Twitter at Poets and Muses. With us today is Austin Davis, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Words from a Student, and my poem, Same Old, Same Old. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place in Arizona during the week of April 6th. On Tuesday, April 7th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting their weekly poetry writing workshop via Zoom at zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 520-208-8451. Again, that's zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 520-208-8451. On Friday, April 10th, from 7 to 9 p.m., Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting her weekly Phoenix Poetry Series during April, celebrating National Poetry Month. This will be taking place via Zoom at asu.zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 6431736637. Again, that's asu.zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 6431736637. During this Friday's poetry reading, on the 10th from 7 to 9 p.m., myself as well as several past poets and muses poet guests will be reading, so please come and check us out. Again, at asu.zoom.us forward slash j forward slash 6431-736-637. If you have enjoyed and support the arts and culture that's available in Arizona, please donate to the Emergency Relief Fund for Arizona Artists and Arts Professionals that the Arizona Commission on the Arts has set up to help artists in need. Unfortunately, it had to close soon after it opened yesterday, April 4th, because it received more than 500 applications, though it only had enough funds for 150 grants. They have a donate button on their website at azarts.gov forward slash grant forward slash emergency dash relief dash fund. Again, that's azarts.gov arts.gov forward slash grant forward slash emergency dash relief dash fund. And now welcome to our poet guest of the week, Austin Davis. Hey Austin, thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi there, thank you very much for having me. Great. So you brought with you the poem Words from a Student. Before we get into that, however, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a poet and a student activist. I go to school at ASU. 
I'm a sophomore majoring in creative writing with a concentration in poetry. I have a new book out in March from Weasel Press, and it's called The World Isn't the Size of Our Neighborhood Anymore. I think you've had other books, Yeah, right. I had a book of poetry published last year, a little chapbook, and it was titled Second Civil War, and that came out from uh, Moran Press, and it was a collection of political poetry. And I remember you were on KJZZ. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was last April. Oh, yeah, you're one of the April, the poetry month. Yeah, the poetry month. Nice. That was nice. very fun. Tom Maxidon is an amazing person. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very yeah. nice guy. I also chatted with him yeah, for the that. same month. Yeah. How did you get into poetry? I've been writing poetry since I was like 12, I think, for a really long time. Okay. And I started out writing short stories when I was a really young, like six or seven or something. And mm-hmm. I would make these little homemade chat books mm-hmm. and give them out to all my family and friends. Like I. Yeah. I'd like uh, write them up and then draw a picture on like a piece of like cardstock and then like stapled uh-huh. them together and give them out. And my mom still has some. <laughs> oh, nice. But I've been writing for a really long time, and it started out as just a way for me to you know get my feelings out and mm-hmm. you know express myself right. and make myself feel better about growing up. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but it's kind of evolved into a tool for social justice. I, I really want to use my poetry to help people and make a difference and that's kind of the goal for me right now right yeah I get the feeling from reading the poems that you sent me and also from hearing some of your other poems was there any particular event that made you transition from short stories to I know this is some time ago but I transitioned yeah. from short stories to poetry let's see um I, I remember I really started writing poetry a lot more in junior high when mm-hmm. I was kind of becoming a teenager mm-hmm. and I'm not really sure what sparked that, mm-hmm. but I think it was just because I, that was my first creative writing class was okay. in junior high, and the teacher, I think he was a poet himself, or he, mm-hmm. he really loved poetry, so we read a lot of poetry, and okay. that's what really got me into it, because before then, I'd never really read any poetry, ah. and the only poetry I'd really, you know, encountered in, in school was, you know, really old, old stuff, and right. I didn't relate to as much, right. but, you know, I think he introduced me to some more contemporary poets, mm-hmm. and I saw that this is still relevant, and this is really cool, and I really connected with Okay. Those poets. Cool. So, yeah. Do you happen to remember who? I uh, the first poet that I really loved when I was like twelve or whatever was Billy Collins. Okay. Was he was kind of like a gateway poet for me. Ah, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, we all have those. Gateways. Right. <laughs> gateway something something. But now, yeah. <laughs> but now I think the poet that really got me into political poetry was Terence Hayes, mm-hmm. and he wrote this book called American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, mm-hmm. and it blew me away. It was mm-hmm. just incredible amazing each sonnet is titled the same thing it's titled american sonnet for my past and future assassin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and each sonnet goes into each other and there's like there's different images that re- repeat in different poems and they just all kind of go together and it's a cohesive collection and it's really really amazing <laughs> wow that's yeah. wonderful and when did you start you said writing political poetry i think it was my senior year of high school is when i really got into it maybe junior year of high school okay um because so we had a a walkout for March for Our Lives right. at my school. And I read the first poem I'd ever written about gun violence at that walkout at my school. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that experience. And then the year after that, I read that same poem at a actual March for Our Lives event mm-hmm. here in Arizona. And I got to meet some of the Parkland students. Oh, were they And here? yeah, they, they were touring. They were going around. Okay. It was like a, a March for Our Lives youth summit, I think was what it, called, what it right. was called. And I got okay. to meet them and we talked for a while. And that really inspired me to want to use my passion to right. help people, you know, right. make a difference. Right. Well, it sounds like you were fortunate because you never had to experience that yourself. Right, yeah, I've never experienced it, so I'm, 
very lucky and extremely privileged. You know, I've been able to meet people who have, you know. Right, right. Which is, I mean, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I think more people should never, ever have that experience. Right. Oh, me too. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So um, is this the poem that you brought or is that The that poem that I read at the March for Lives? Right, right. Uh, no, it was called Trading Flesh for Metal was okay. the one that I wrote. But I, I read this poem and Trading Flesh for Metal at a March for Lives event this year. Oh, okay. Well, um, please, if you don't mind yeah. reading it for us. Uh, so this poem is called Words from a Student. All the kids are picking flowers, but they wouldn't dare plant them. It's too late in the day for beauty to grow from nothing. There's not nearly enough time before the bullets will start to rain, like words of hate on a swing set, and the class will have to count the holes in the wall during math. When was the last time kids were this afraid? They should be scared of failing Tuesday's spelling quiz, waking up five minutes late and having to run after the bus, or running out of ink in their pens. They shouldn't be scared of getting shot up between classes, but I'd be scared as hell too if guns were as prevalent in people's hands as racist jokes were in people's mouths, Confederate flags were in people's trucks, and thoughts and prayers were in people's minds. Look around a class of children. They've all seen the news. They've all heard their parents whispering in the light from the refrigerator late at night. Each student has thought about what it would feel like if one of these times their quarterly active shooter drill wasn't just pretend, and they were huddled in the closet in fear for real. Each teacher has wondered at one point or another if they might have to shed their skin and become a shield to save a child's life. A child with a mom and dad. A child with a brother and sister. A child who walks the dog after dinner and plays with roly-polies during recess. A child with skin and blood and eyes and tears. A child who thinks about the stars and likes banana popsicles even though no one else does. A child who shares her animal crackers. A child who wonders why we don't stop the car and hug homeless people. A child who gets sad sometimes. A child who likes to read under a tree by the creek. A child with a good heart, dreams, and a future. Thank you. So do you like uh, banana popsicles? I do. It's actually my favorite popsicle. <laughs> no one else likes them, so. <laughs> I have to try it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can't say you don't like something until you've tried it. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you write this? I wrote this poem last summer. Okay. And um, it's included in my next book. Mm-hmm. I edited it for a while. So I think the first draft I wrote um, last summer, but I, I, I've been working on it for a while. Right. So, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the next book. Is that going to be a political poetry as well? It's sort of. So there's this poem in there about, you know, the gun violence epidemic in America. Mm -hmm. And there's also a longer poem, about three or four pages about toxic masculinity included mm -hmm. in the book. But the collection as a whole is really just about, you know, coming of age in a time of turmoil and mm -hmm. change. So it's it's a very nostalgic collection to me because you know there's a lot about love as well in mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, it I'd say it's political. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so a little bit of this, a little bit of that, yeah. like some political aspects to Definitely, it. Definitely. Yeah. Going away from this particular poem for mm -hmm. just a little bit. Yeah. Um speaking of your first book, which you said is more political, right? In nature? Yeah, it was actually my second. My first book came out my senior year of high school okay. and it was titled Cloudy Days Still Nights and it was 
just on that alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yes, which is what you should be writing about when you're right, like, when I'm 17. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nobody should be writing about this sort of subject, which is so. But I it's think, sad. Yeah, yeah but. it is. But I think you made it very hopeful in many ways, just because of the humanity you infused into the poem, mm-hmm. especially toward the end even though you talk about some of the problems that's inherently in these uh, shootings, the politics around it that has ensured that this is not being fixed in really any substantial way. Right. And what specifically inspired you to write this poem? I think it really started just, you know, working with March for Lives. And Mm -hmm. as I said before, I really just want to use my poetry to make a difference. And this is something I'm really passionate about. So Mm -hmm. I kind of just sat down and thought about, you know, I want to do definitely incorporate the humanity of it mm-hmm. into it, you know, and kind of have it from a child's perspective, right. I guess. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, are you still working with them? Is, it, is there a cha- chapter here? Yeah, there's March for Lives Arizona. I stay in contact with them, but I haven't, I think the last thing I did with them was about a month ago or so at their youth summit. I just read a couple poems. And right, right. It was really cool, really fun. Yeah, it's good that they're incorporating different art forms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Emma Gonzalez herself is an artist. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I haven't been fortunate enough to meet Emma yet, but mm-hmm. she's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's very popular as well right, right now. Unfortunately, through this incident, um, which is such a tragic way of becoming well-known. Right. I think the, the most amazing part is they took this tragedy and they used it to create change. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, th- I just think that's beautiful and amazing. And incredibly inspiring it really is it's wonderful that they are trying to do from the ground up what politicians have failed them right yeah failed to do so definitely because they built it from nothing you know yeah yeah well from their passion from their grief from their passion and the grief yeah. Yeah. yeah can you tell walk us through some of the imagery that you created through the poem yeah well i really wanted to start the poem in a metaphor mm-hmm. that's why the first stanza is All the kids are picking flowers, but they wouldn't dare plant them. It's too late in the day for beauty to grow from nothing. With this, I really just wanted to start the poem out with this idea that, you know, beauty is fleeting Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and Mm -hmm. you never know what might happen every day. Yeah. And it feels like uh, not just beauty, but also life is fleeting. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything is fleeting. Right. When you first start out reading this, you're kind of wondering, why aren't they planting these flowers? what's scaring them off you know right yeah and what is it about the day being too late that would prevent anyone from planting things because you know in arizona pre-dawn or (laughs) pre-noon right yeah (laughs) after sundown is the best time for people to be doing anything especially during the summer right definitely other places though (laughs) (laughs) yeah other places i mean so there's an ominous third character that's sort of being foreshadowed. Yeah, right at the beginning. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the poem is, it's kind of the turning point in the poem, and it's, when was the last time kids were this afraid? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I made it its own stanza, because I just want, really wanted that to be emphasized. Right, right. And you you probably felt this by interacting with with those high schoolers from uh, March From Our Lives. Yeah. Because a lot of kids and parents Moms for, um, there's a group called Moms for... Moms Demand Action. Yeah, Yeah. Moms Demand Action as well. I I remember 
since the Parkland shooting happened, mm. there's a lot more emphasis on the kids being afraid. Yeah. News coverage about the kids having to hide to talk about for themselves this experience. Right. Right. Whereas previous to that, even when the Connecticut shooting happened, mm -hmm. those six year olds, it was more about the parents. And obviously the parents are still afraid. Right. Yeah, to bring their kids to school and yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, so that's why I was saying to you before, it's great to see the poem written from the perspective of a student. Right. And also from you, who not long ago was in that situation in high school. Yeah, I mean, and you know, when I was in high school, we used to have those quarterly active shooter drills, you mm -hmm. know, where mm -hmm. you'd like hide in the closet and or like under the desks and stuff and just in preparation, you know. Right, right. When you just said before, you wrote this poem when it happened, not this poem, the previous poem, yeah. when it happened three years ago. It's kind of amazing that it was three years ago yeah. already. And I know. there's been so many more shootings that happened, not just in schools, but it seems oh, everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah. As somebody who, I mean, even now, obviously, universities also have shootings, yeah. you know, who is in this situation. Are you guys still practicing drills? Are you doing it at ASU? We don't do it at ASU, not that I know okay. of, because you have different classes every day, you know, right, so right. it'd be more difficult to try to do that. But I think we should. Yeah, you know, just yeah. as a general situation, which again, it's so incredibly sad. And yeah, scary that we would have to do that, you know. Right, but, right. But you know, it really gives me hope because there are so many amazing people doing really awesome work every day, and it. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, and I think the transition for March for Our Lives from just um, trying to rally specific gun, more like protection against violence policies, to now getting out the vote. Yeah. Um, equality, emphasizing right. equality and representation. I think they're really getting to the heart of why these things happen mm -hmm. to begin with. Yeah. You know, attacking the root of the problem. Right. And the underlying hate behind it. Yeah. yeah, the underlying not being able to accept people who are different from yeah. you. But also... The fear. There's a lot of fear. Yeah, but also the political inaction mm -hmm. that's been around for so long. I mean, the Connecticut shooting happened in 2012? Something like that. Yeah, that's... it's insane to think that it's almost a decade since... Those six-year-olds were... Right, and, you know, we're having yeah so many shootings now, you know? Yeah, it, it's amazing. Going back to your poem, you said that, that that is your favorite line, when was the last time kids were afraid? But that, from then on, you sort of transition, right? Yeah. You move it. That's kind of a, a transition in the poem. Yeah. A shift. Yeah, and you in move In the tone it, as well. Yeah. You move it to something more and more positive. Mm -hmm. You talk about the feelings, but then you go into the more positive, the humanizing aspects of it. Was there a, a conscious choice? Yeah. When I first wrote it, this was really the the progression that came out. I think the, the edits were on the on the next page and like the last last part about the child, you know. But right. this was the progression that I kind of had in my mind when I was like, you know, initially thinking about writing this poem. I wanted it to start somewhere darker and then end somewhere hopeful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What has been the reaction to this poem? Because you read it. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the March for Our Lives event, everyone was very supportive. And mm -hmm. 
it's really cool for me to read these poems. Well, I've only done it twice at these events, but it's it's been really cool because most of the the kids there are in high school. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of maybe you know hopefully sparking some inspiration out of from them, you know, and right. you know, because that's kind of the goal is to you know bring people together right. for this common goal, you know. Right. So participating in these events, do you feel that these events? Are actually galvanizing the kids to sort of chomping at the bit to vote and to express their definitely, own. definitely. Yeah. You know, being around these kids and seeing you know how passionate they are about mm-hmm. enacting change really inspires me. It's incredible because when you just see you know it on the news or something, it's different than when you're talking with people who've experienced it. You know,、right. there are so many kids, so many high school kids and college kids who who really want to make a difference. Right, and I think it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And you have mentioned before that you write a lot about toxic masculinity. Yeah. And you wrote other poems about school shootings as、mm-hmm. well. Have you written poems where you sort of marry the two subjects because they tend to be related? They, they definitely overlap. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I incorporate. Yes, in the poem trading flesh for a metal, there's、um, there's a few stanzas about toxic masculinity and how、mm-hmm. it overlaps, and because I think they. You know, they definitely go hand in hand.、Right. Um, so yeah, definitely. I've been writing a lot about toxic masculinity lately, as opposed to gun violence. So、mm-hmm. I'm kind of that's really what a, what my focus has been on lately. Right, so,、yeah. right. And what made you decide to focus on that? I think it's just growing up as a man and coming into contact with a lot of men who exhibit these toxic characteristics, and having them kind of forced upon me as well, and trying not to. Become someone I don't want to become, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to be the person I want to be. It's been kind of hard going up. It, it's a conscious decision, I think, to、right. not exhibit these characteristics. Right, you know? right, right. So, yeah, and it's also hard to kind of decide, right? What do you want to be when? Right. Yeah. What kind of person do you want to be? Right. Yeah. So, what do you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I want to be a good person. I want to live my life with love, you know,、mm-hmm. and spread hope. I guess. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And for this poem, obviously, you went in a different direction. Yeah. And you have said that this is how it kind of flowed out.、Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like you write more kind of stream of consciousness. Yeah. So, okay. Definitely, I think so. Definitely, the first drafts when it comes out, it's it's definitely stream of consciousness, and then、right. when I edit it, it's a little less, but still pretty, you know. <laughs> right, right. And、um, what was it that made you add it more? In the second page, when you were talking about describing the child. Well, I think I originally I finished the poem after you know to become a shield to save a child's life,、mm-hmm. but I thought that something was missing, so I could I took a couple days to just kind of reflect and think、right. about where I want this poem to go. And、right. one day when I didn't have the rest of the poem out in front of me, I just sat down and I got my notebook and I wrote this section、mm-hmm. without、um, this context, the, the rest of the poem. Right. Then I went back and paired them together, but I wanted to really dig in deep to what it, you know, would feel like to be a kid during this time, you know,、mm-hmm, and、mm-hmm. just looking at it from because I have a, a little brother and a little sister. Honestly, I think I was babysitting them when <laughs> when I wrote this and、okay. just kind of watching them play and stuff. And, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And see what like that moment of calm. Yeah. That, right. right. And obviously, as an older sibling. Especially one that actually babysits them, you <laughs> want them to always have that, like in their lives. Right? Yeah, right. 
And that's kind of why I incorporated this stanza as well. The They should be scared of failing Tuesday's spelling quiz, waking up five minutes late and having to run after the bus, or running out of ink in their pens. Because I think children are losing their innocence very young mm-hmm. nowadays. Yeah. I think it's always been a problem, but I think it's especially so right now with the internet and everything going on in our country right now. So Yeah, um, everything going on and also, you know, having death looming so near. Yeah, right. right? The constant uncertainty is really scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's some irony to people who are screaming to preserve unborn lives. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then kids are dying. <laughs> like, oh, thoughts and prayers. Right. <laughs> and it's not like we were elected to, you know, write laws or anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. It must be frustrating. <laughs> Definitely. And in terms of, you know, you say you want to affect change in, with your poetry. Yeah. What specific actions do you want to perform in order to affect those changes? Well, I've been thinking about it a lot, actually, because it's a really tough question. But I've been trying some stuff out. I I printed out some broadsides Mm -hmm. to raise money for Planned Parenthood. And um, so that was just me kind of experimenting on a small scale. Mm -hmm. What would happen if I invested, like, I think I put in, like, 20 bucks or whatever to get, like, Mm -hmm. cardstock and then like an image and then my poem and then print them out and like mail them to people. Mm -hmm. What would happen if I, you know, invest $20, you know, how how many people would donate to Planned Parenthood? Because I, for every person that I sent a broadside, they would donate like five or 10 bucks to Mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood. And I don't remember how much we raised, but it was a good amount. So I Mm want to do that again. Um, That was, I want to say last summer. So I want to do one over winter break before I go back to school. Okay. Yeah. So just kind of stuff like that. And I, I've been trying to post videos of my political poetry on like YouTube and stuff like that mm-hmm. and try to get it out. But I also want to go to these events and participate in right, right, rallies, right. And, you know, like actively be a part of the community, you know. Right. I'm interested in logistics as well. <laughs> yeah. How do you keep track of who's donating? Do they tell you? And- yeah. Well, it's easy on Facebook because there's like a button and they could just like donate from like I- I'd say like. Um, if you donate to Planned Parenthood, uh, I'll, I'll mail you one of these broadsides. And then if they, uh, they can just press this button and it'll say, like, you've raised five bucks for... Right, right, and, right. But for other people, like, they would just, like, message me on Instagram or something. Right. And then I just kind of trust them, you know. They just, oh, yeah, okay. And I just be kind of like, yeah, donate whatever you can to Planned okay. Parenthood and I'll mail you one of these. And they were like, yeah, I donated a few bucks. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll send you a, a broadside, you know. So right, right, it's right. kind of a trust thing, but I trust people. So. Right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah, and I suppose it's easy enough to ask people to just send you, like, a, take a screenshot of their receipt. Or right, something. that too. If I really wanted to, yeah, I could yeah, definitely yeah. do that. Yeah, you might think about starting a nonprofit and have other poets to. do that. Yeah, you know? I would love to. I actually applied for this micro grant from, I think it's the Creative Youth of Arizona. They were mm, holding this. Right. I don't know if I got it or anything yet, but um, I just told them about this project. So. Cool. And I, I really want to expand it so it would be other poets as well participating. And, like, I, I would print out their poems as well. Mm-hmm. And so we'd have, like, a collection. You can get all these poems and donate, like, a larger sum of money. Right, right. So I, I really want to collaborate with more poets. I just, um, working up to that. <laughs> yeah, and you have school. You right, have yeah. School. <laughs> so this is more like a, a summer break or a spring break project. Yeah, well, spring break is the tour, so I'm oh, going to be kind of busy okay. there. So I want to try to get it done probably next week. <laughs> I'll, right, I'll try right, to, like, right. 
exactly. Where are you going? Um, for, so for in March, the tour is just around Arizona. So I think I okay. I have a, a show in Phoenix and Mesa and Tucson and Flagstaff and Apache Junction. Nice. Out of the nice. readings. And then next summer, I'm going to try to go out of state a little bit. And they're just at like libraries and bookstores and right. coffee shops and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So. Is the publisher of your book organizing that for you? No, it's... it's Self-organized. Yeah, it's self-organized. Good Lord. Do you sleep? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it can be hard, right? Yeah, definitely. Good thing you were young. So yeah. You have the energy, but still, don't burn out, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been sleeping a lot over the break, so I, I, I don't sleep for a while, and then I just, like, sleep for three days, so it's okay. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, not like, that's an exaggeration, right. but, you know, I, I, I have to catch up sometime. <laughs> yeah, of course. So. I know. I, I've heard of many people who actually do that. Yeah. You know, like, they, especially doing exam time or something. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've been lucky enough last semester, I didn't have to cram like that and stay up super late, but my first semester, because I was kind of new, I Right. I did do that. I didn't plan as well. <laughs> no, it's hard to because you're adjusting to a yeah, new definitely. environment. This semester I kind of got back on track. <laughs> cool, cool, so, cool. Yeah. yeah. Damn. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't envy that experience and I don't ever want to go back to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, but it's really worthwhile. I, I really loved the opportunity to meet people from a diverse background and yeah. just gain new perspectives and... There are a lot of really cool events at ASU, like mm-hmm, movie screenings and homeless outreach. There's a homeless outreach program that's, cool. that's really cool that Neil Lester actually organizes through Project Humanities, and there's just a lot going on and a lot of people doing cool stuff. Wonderful. <laughs> Wait, so, tell us a little bit about Project Humanities. Oh, yeah. So, well, so Dr. Lester was actually my professor, um, mm-hmm. my first semester of college. Amazing professor. Mm-hmm. And he taught American literature post-1860 was the class that I took. And he also runs Project Humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of got in contact with him, and we were talking about starting a club at ASU mm-hmm. about political art. So it would mm-hmm. be people to come together and share their political art. And right. uh, we haven't started that yet, but we were talking about it for a long time. So I, I really want to get that up and going with him cool. sometime, too. But my mom is a psychologist at ASU, mm-hmm. and so she collaborated with Project Humanities uh, at the beginning of the semester. Project Humanities was doing a parenting program, mm-hmm. and so she's like a, she's a child psychologist. Mm-hmm. So um, I got to interact with them, going to her event there and stuff. Right, and right. It's been really cool. But on Fridays from 2 to 4, I think, mm-hmm. they do, like, sorting for this homeless outreach program. And mm-hmm. then I think I think it's every other Saturday mm-hmm. at 6 in the morning in Phoenix, there's the homeless outreach program that mm-hmm. Neil Lester and Project Humanities puts on. And it's just really cool. Oh. A, lot of, a lot of people doing great work. It's <laughs> wonderful. Well, you should probably approach him about your broadside project and yeah. for donations. I don't think I've told him about it, but I, I should definitely yeah, talk yeah. to him about it. <laughs> yeah, you should, definitely. Well, going back a little bit to what we talked about before, which is the overlap between mass shootings and toxic masculinity, yeah. it's because you, you know, of the packet of poems that you sent me have both elements yeah. <laughs> that it made me think of my poem... Same old, same old. Right. Which I'm going to read now. Yeah. I can get into talking about it. Strolling into a one-horse town, whistling Dixie, eyes caressing a line of steel steeds nibbling on concrete, 
This may be where I can rest a while, she reflects, before a gleeful rogue riding a hog zooms past, leaving her to wonder what for. Across town, a police car puts on its sirens, wailing to accompany an adrenaline-high errand, screeches to a stop in the near 180, outside a red brick framed with ivy. The silence under the clear blue sky, chaos in corridor centuries old belies. Apart from the stillness of the expired and the forced hush of those seeking to hide from a normally quiet loner term Mr. Hyde, punctuating walls, skin, and air with periods before the bells announce the third period. At some point after an eon passes, for those who await their dreaded fate, he will surrender without coming to harm to the squads outside waiting to disarm. Preceding a parade of coffin Paul Baird to the tune of thoughts and prayers all around ushering a hushing of politics, followed by the news that our Mr. Hyde was obsessed with his last girlfriend and lavish abuses on her and friends while the media combs through fine details of his life like a dedicated TV show. And his now dead ex remains nameless, another missed clue shoved aside as useless, piled into an already overstuffed closet with dismissed misogyny buried over the years threatening to unhinge the bulging doors. The same pattern tattoos so many mass killer Johnnies, you think someone would notice the similarities, apart from journalists listing statistics being ignored while another horror show is cycled through as a snore. All those are newly arrived stranger watches on the TV at her now frequent hangout, thinking this is all too familiar is anywhere still safe. Well, I love the, the progression of this poem. Thank you. Uh, the buildup from the first scene makes every powerful line hit that much harder. What was your process like in building this progression? Well, it was kind of weird because this is also Parkland. Mm. This is about Parkland. Yeah. In many ways, even though what actually inspired me to write this was my first time going to District 4 Poetry in Mesa. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been to Mesa downtown. Yeah, I actually live in Mesa. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so yeah. you know, it's very quaint. It is very quaint. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the first stanza comes from. Okay. Because it was my first time going there, and it was just like the cutest little thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and With all the little shops and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Very mom and pop. Down right? on Main Street. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's fashion in a way that still obviously has the old buildings, but mm. it's also the lamps and everything. It's very consistent architecturally. Yeah. And if you heard the program, you know that I tend to write about devastation. I tend to, like, <laughs> go the opposite direction the way you did, which is from right. devastation to hopefulness. I'm more like from hopeful, happy, <laughs> to devastation. Right. You know? I don't remember what it was about that experience that just made me think of Parkland. So it was written actually in mid-October. Again, I don't remember what it was about. 
I guess it was the quaintness of it, mm -hmm. the safety that you kind of feel in such a town. Yeah. It's such a, almost like a gingerbread town, you yeah, know? Yeah, right. And to <clears throat> think that horrific things happen in these, what people would have thought would be safe havens. Right. This false sense of security, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also it plays on the... The difference between perception and reality, mm. which is, I think, undergirds a lot of my poems. And I'm actually exploring the idea of Americana. I realized when talking about another poem with another poet yeah. that a lot of these, like what we know as Americana is actually based much more on perception, on this mythology American mythology rather right. than the reality of what people live and experience, especially people from marginalized communities. Right, yeah. So I think that's subconsciously that's what like came about. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Can you discuss the dialogue and the speaker of this poem and what they add to the, the poem? Because there are two lines of dialogue. In the poem, at the beginning, this may be where I can rest a while, and then at the end, this is all too familiar. Is anywhere still safe? Which really hits hard. Yeah, it's and it echoes what you were writing. Right, about, right. Yeah, it's the, I saw definite parallels between the two. Yeah, that that pullout line that you had. What was that line again? Uh, when was the last time kids were this afraid? Yeah. Yeah. So it has that similarity. It's the idea, because I'm pretty new to Arizona. Uh -huh. So, and of course, going to Mesa, that was my first time going to this particular, you know, District 4 poetry. Right. So, and it was very welcoming. So it's this idea of coming into a new place, looking at this, again, sort of gingerbread architecture, yeah. <laughs> and feeling like this is a beautiful place. And so she's thinking to herself, this character she's thinking oh this is a great place I can you know stay here I will feel safe I, it will be wonderful yeah. and then of course she witnesses um, through what you would imagine is what she sees on the news at her local bar or local hangout or diner or something like right. that all of these again very Americana sort of uh, moments of yeah. hanging out in a diner and and then seeing this horrible thing happening across town Definitely. Yeah. I think one really cool thing, one really cool parallel between, you know, our two poems is that they both promote this idea of empathy. Mm -hmm. And I think that empathy is really the key to understanding. Mm -hmm. And I believe that art is the perfect medium to let yourself be vulnerable and yeah. open to feeling new perspectives. And I think that's really why political poetry is so necessary and vital. Yeah, it is vital. At the same time, I feel like if we're all shouting, I don't know who's going to continue to listen. Yeah, right. So part of me, when I heard that you were able to actually publish a book of political poetry, I'm kind of curious as to how it's laid out. Mm -hmm. And because at some point, I feel like people are going to be just exhausted. Yeah, right. By all of those high-strung emotions, which it's a very normal reaction to all of these horrific happenings yeah. that are taking place. Well, that's why, especially for, so for my collection, it's a chapbook and it's, mm. it's very short. I think there's, there's 10 poems in okay. the collection. Okay. So I think that's a really, really cool way to 
come about, you know, a mm-hmm. book of political poetry, because it's this really small container. Right. So it's definitely an intense collection, but it's only 20-something pages, you know, so right. you get this in this small burst. Right. I think it definitely could be more exhausting if it's longer, yeah. but I really wanted this to be, like, super short and just, okay. like, a burst. Cool. Yeah, thank you for explaining, because I was wondering <laughs> about that. I'm yeah. like... You know, I read them because I'm sure you feel the same way. It's because you feel like you have to get this out. You yeah. have to get this out. At the same time, because we're surrounded by so much of it, yeah, I wonder how much it gets through to other people who are mm. also feeling kind of exhausted by all this. Right. It can definitely be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was really interested about Mr. Hyde in mm-hmm. the poem. Can you talk about Mr. Hyde a little bit? A lot of it is sort of factual from the news based on the Parkland shooter. Yeah. And, you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, you know, I don't remember if this is actually the Parkland shooter or some other shooter. And mm-hmm. that's really sad. That is really sad, yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because a that, lot that of... moment of realization. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of these school shoot- shooters tend to have a very similar profile. I think, yeah. If you, if you look at them, they're <laughs> all, you know, white... Male. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and some of them have obvious psychological problems. Yeah, right. More important to note is that they're not being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to highlight the fact that many people with psychological issues do not choose to hurt other people. Oh, that that's incredibly important. Yeah. Because it's not a result of mental illness. No, it's you know? not. Yeah. It's it's a combination of many, many things, many issues that right. are going on. And one of them, obviously, is how easily one can access deadly weapons. Oh, yeah. So, right. Yeah. So I think, I think if you look at it from that perspective, the Parkland shooter, mm-hmm. for instance, or some other school shooters, and you will see a lot of similarities. But this, I specifically modeled it on that guy. Yeah. Definitely. One of the lines that really affected me the hardest was in the fifth stanza, and it's, and now his dead ex remains nameless. And I, I kind of just stopped, and I had to reread that again, because that that's just a really powerful line. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, since you write about toxic masculinity, yeah. you probably notice in the news as well, a lot of news covers tends to be, now not as much, but also tends to be focusing on the perpetrators. And not the victim, yeah. Yeah. Right. And also, for some reason, they tend to have the best photos. Like, <laughs> like there was um, recently, uh, it was at a bar. He actually shot his sister. Again, it's just so many, so many of them. I read about that, yeah. Yeah. And I remember <clears throat> the local coverage. First, it was like of one of the cutest photos of him at a holiday party or something. And I'm just like, <laughs> why yeah why do you put up the cutest i mean like is he is he competing for a mr mass shooter <laughs> you know you, you feel like he's in some kind of calendar he's right. competing yeah. for some pageant you know this is talked about before as well uh, in analysis about how the emphasis is always on the perpetrator and the murderer giving them almost or giving future would-be murderers almost incentive, especially if they were doing this to seek fame in some kind of perverted yeah. way. Yeah. Whereas the victims, a lot of the time, especially in the cases of many of these shooters, 
mass shooters tend to have this overlap with uh, men insoles, which is, um, I forgot the actual, basically they're, they're forced to be celibate. Mm-hmm. But they somehow think that they're entitled to sex and they're entitled to the red pillars. <laughs> you know, they somehow think that they deserve to uh, just because they're men. That and obviously they must think they're good guys because right. they talk like they do, right? Yeah, yeah. it's just a warped. Yeah, warped sense, sense yeah. of entitlement. Right. Yeah. It's, and in perpetrating these mass shootings. And in having the news surround them with their stories, mm-hmm. with their background, with all this digging, which obviously the news should be doing. You know, it's not wrong that they're doing that. It's just that unfortunately the process actually feeds into their egomania. Yeah, definitely. And then, and also, again, this relation between those who perpetrate and those who actually tend to be abusive. Um, either verbally or physically, yeah. uh, toward their female relatives, female girlfriends, or, like partners, or yeah. partners. They tend to be abusive. The one in Las Vegas as well was very abusive to his partner. There's been like a documented correlation between mass shooters and misogynists. So, yeah. And they all exhibit you know, a lot of these same characteristics, a lot of these traits. Yeah. So. And ironically, on the other hand, when... Uh, Victims, uh, survivors of this sort of abuse, go and report the incidents. They're being dismissed by the police, by local authorities. Like in this case, in Parkland as well. Yeah. I think they didn't really take her seriously. And she was one of the victims. Yeah. And it's very troubling because I've talked about this before as women who are survivors of abuse at being canaries in the mines mm-hmm. in a way because we report we're not being taken seriously right yeah we're being brushed aside we continue to be nameless as i said in this line yeah yet the men gain the fame even in their horrific actions they still gain the recognition right yeah which is like a very <laughs> twisted way of attaining fame right, right? But yeah, definitely. And, and we as a society worship fame. Yeah, and I mean, especially in America, you know, yeah. the famous are, are royalty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in many ways, our entire society, our way of going about treating victims, treating survivors, and treating perpetrators really inadvertently feeds into this reward system yeah. for those who do horrible things, but become famous i mean even me too is the same thing is mm-hmm. that we allow famous people to get away with whatever yeah right <laughs> you know so they're all really like a pass <laughs> related yeah yeah and and again the victims become nameless partly because they're being ignored and partly because there are so many of them to take down a famous person that they all become this pile together you know yeah like dozens of Weinstein victims. Mm. Do you know who the victims are? Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, some of them, they're famous themselves, but a, a lot of them, you're just like, who are they again? Who is this person? You right, know, right. they become a lump, a nameless lump. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I think that was, that's one of the most powerful lines in your 
home because <laughs> it's incredibly true how sad it is but yeah it's incredibly true today i think we kind of discussed everything i wanted to yeah is there anything else you want to i think it's just you know how much our our poems kind of relate to each other yeah and we come to similar observations mm-hmm. <laughs> again i i think it's interesting to both see the differences and the similarities you yeah. know in the trajectory how our two poems go in the opposite <laughs> opposite direction but they meet in the middle yeah they and do. i think i think that's really interesting because you know definitely we start into completely different places right but the heart of both of our poems is kind of the same right right and you had asked me previously about like her that character's second thought, which is like, yeah. is anywhere safe? Right? Is anywhere still safe? Yeah. So, so it's kind of, uh, it's, it's you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah, because even in this, now that you've, we've talked about like the context of this poem and, you know, where, where you were writing it and, you know, the inspiration behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when you think you're, you're safe, you don't know if you really are, you know. And right, right. That's, that really affected me. That, that that jumped out at me from your poem because it it's kind of the same idea from my poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can tell from the first stanza that there is a backstory to it, yeah. right? Which is not being covered. Definitely. So she herself has a backstory, but you know, which is kind of feeding into what's going on polit- politically now because yeah. prior to twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. There were already many things wrong that needed societally need to be fixed. But now, on top of that, we have someone who is so desperate for attention that he will create emergencies just so that he can keep the attention on himself. Right, and it's also a distraction from, you know, all the awful things he's doing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He's he's distracting us with, like... Hey, don't look at what I'm doing. Look at this. <laughs> yes, exactly. It serves those two purposes. Yeah. At the same time, because we have to do all this firefighting, because he's starting so many little fires. Yeah, right. Dumpster fires, basically, that we cannot put our resources and time into what already needs fixing, what is broken, and what is basically festering. Right, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many little little fires, as you said, that sometimes it's hard to focus on the big fire that's all around us. Yeah. Know, because we're trying to put up the little things, you know. Yeah, yeah. And because he's starting. <laughs> yeah, and because he's, he's starting them with basically a little little pipe bombs. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's just so frustrating for, I imagine you as well, because you care about what's going on in society, you know, even before 2016. Those yeah, were, well, it's really... It was really scary to me when Trump got elected because he gives a platform for hate, you know, mm-hmm. and he allows all these, you know, fears that people have and all this hate that people have. He, he brings it out of people, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's exploiting it, right? Yeah, oh, and he's definitely exploiting it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he's exploiting them for himself, for yeah. his own good. He doesn't even care about those issues. Right, yeah. Uh, on a, you know, he doesn't have to care about issues he doesn't need to give a crap about race relationship relations he can even though he's not a billionaire he can still (laughs) afford to just 
take a flight somewhere else and avoid all, all of those. He can yeah. go into his little compound in his Florida. Bubble. Yeah. And he can avoid all of those, whereas we can't. Right. Average Americans cannot. So for me, again, the frustration is seeing people who are obviously suffering from issues that they cannot deal with on their own, hoping for a change in government that might bring them solutions, but is rallying around this obviously incredibly self-involved person that's not helping them. So my frustration is just like, I understand you want somebody who cares about your problems. He talks about them, (laughs) but he's not really doing anything for you. So I don't understand the rallying behind him. I don't, that's the part where I'm just like, how does this help you? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm definitely, I, I agree. <laughs> Completely. So it's frustrating because, again, you know, it's similar to the trajectory of this poem. It's like this main character whose story we completely veer away from yeah. obviously has a backstory that maybe she would have been able to relate had this more urgent thing didn't happen and then she's in this new town she's trying to have a new life where she feels safe yeah yet she realizes she can't feel safe right this is not a place for her even though it first appeared to be yeah in america it seems like we're very focused on you know the pursuit of the self the pursuit of the self Mm -hmm. and the pursuit of you know personal wealth and i think that that's a really big issue because there are a lot of people who don't have anything and a lot of people don't have a lot and there's a lot of people, or not a lot of people, but a few people who own, like, everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to spread the wealth and to, you know, think of the whole rather than just the self. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for those people who are trying to accumulate wealth, I feel like it's at this point there's so much corruption yeah. that's being fostered as a good thing. The mm-hmm. sort of the Gordon Gecko greed is good speech. Yeah. In, becoming a real life real life scenario or dominance of philosophy that a lot of people feel like unless I become this rich unless I become this famous my problems will not get solved Mm -hmm. and that is a very scary road to go down because then we really are going into the survival of the fittest yeah right so that's terrifying (laughs) yeah yeah it really is Because, I don't know, we're all kind of in this together, you know? And it should be, you know, we should help each other. (laughs) We should. We should. And I feel like, ironically, America in the 50s was on the road of sort of uh, this altruistic self-interest. Because even though we had a hand in destroying much of Europe (laughs) and Japan during the two wars we decided to reinvest in those countries to build them up again mm-hmm. because it was both good for us and good for them right. to do that. You know, and, and it helped us to save our economy by manufacturing, right? yeah. you know, and also helped to, re, again, rebuild those devastated economies, devastated cultures, societies, not cultures, they still have their culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and now we're on a totally different road. We're on a, right. you know, like, what about meism? It's kind of... Right, yeah, and I think, going back to both poems, there's a sense of, 
uncertainty in both poems. Yeah. And, you know, at the end you're kind of just like, you know, we're going down this road, but we don't, we can't see the, the end of the road. You know, we don't know where we're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I feel like movements like the March for Our Lives, it's doing something, it's trying to pull us into a different direction. Oh, definitely. I, I think that March for Lives and, you know, other movements like that are doing incredible work, you know. Yeah. Especially just banding people together, you know, for the yeah. same common goal. Yeah, and it's very helpful in the face of what people who should who should act like adults yeah. refuse to do, <laughs> you know. Well, I think it's just it's it's really cool that movements like that are promoting a positive culture of education, you right. know, because it's it's not really about dividing people; it's about mm-hmm. educating people, you know. Right, right, and saying that we only help sometimes, and we should help each other when yeah. we can, right? Yeah. And but it's still ironic is that <laughs> you know these young, barely. <laughs> 18 year old you know not legally adults are doing the mature thing right yeah whereas people who are like in their 50s 60s (laughs) and 70s you know are behaving like five-year-olds yeah right you know definitely ironic (laughs) (laughs) it's just like i feel like we've we've entered a very topsy-turvy world. Yeah. And I'm like, when do we go through this door? I didn't agree to this. Right, yeah. (laughs) I didn't agree to be here. (laughs) Yeah. So it's always a really interesting time we're living in. Yeah. So on that happy note, (laughs) I want to ask you if you can tell us where people can go see you read. Definitely. And how they can follow you. Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at AustinWDavis1. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Austin underscore Davis17. And you can find my books on Amazon. And I have a website, austindavispoetry.weebly.com, where you can find my tour dates and stuff like that and look up my books and all that and read some poems because I have, like, videos up and stuff like that. Oh, and great. Think about summer break. What plans do you have during the summer? Summer break. Well, I definitely want to go on another tour. So okay. since I'm going to have a lot of time, I want to go out of state. Okay. So I think I'll definitely try to read, do some readings in Arizona. Uh-huh. Um, at libraries and stuff again. Also, right. I've never gone on like a tour or right. done anything. So this is like a new experience for me. Yeah. But yeah. I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah. But if you follow like my social media and my website, you can... Okay. Stay up to date. <laughs> so austindavis.com is where they can find pretty much everything. Right? Uh, austindavispoetry.weebly.com. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that up. No, no problem. That out. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Well, it's been really nice chatting with you. Yeah. I feel really hopeful about the news that you're bringing to me from the from the younger generation, from yeah. what you guys are doing. So I have a you. lot of hope for the future. Cool. Me too. Me too. Looking at you guys. It it makes me feel hopeful. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, appreciate this. As I mentioned during the top of this episode, Poets and Muses is also available now via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, as well as TuneIn. You can find the links to those on our website at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of our SoundCloud page, similar to our newsletter link. You can also follow us at Poets and Muses on Instagram and Twitter. Again, I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.